Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to the show. Today's is a special episode of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. I'm speaking with Joy Calloway about historical fiction. Joy's a novelist, the author of several books that, as she says, takes the historical beyond the sources. Where the sources fail to explain things, she fills in the blanks. Her first book, The Grand Design, is based on the true story of Dorothy Draper, the famed interior designer who used bright colors and large prints in the post-World War II era. She's also the author of The Fifth Avenue Artist Society, which draws on her own family history in a novel form. And that's where her latest book explores as well. Specifically, All the Pretty Places combines Calloway's family history, her grandmother specifically, with the drama of Gilded Age, Westchester County, New York. Now, many people have minced history into fiction before, but Calloway aims to elevate the genre and show us what's possible when a historical novelist does deep research. Welcome to the show, Joy. Great. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here today. Okay, well, I think I should probably start off by asking for forgiveness because we've, you know, we've got to get into things and I've never interviewed an author, uh, a fiction author. Uh, so that's something different. Normally we talk about nonfiction work on the show. So this is going to be a lot of fun, I think. That said, I do know that you've done considerable historical research on the Gilded Age. So why do you find the period so compelling for storytelling? I think it seems to me um, and to a lot of people, almost like a fantasy, right? Um, you, people are very enthralled. If you look at like kind of readership and kind of fandoms of people that read novels, you find that a lot of them are reading fantasy. And there's a lot of people that out there that, um, are kind of looking for, uh, I guess, um, just some, some variation on their everyday life. And you look at the Gilded Age and you think, wow, this really happened. But this seems a lot like fantasy in a lot of ways. You have, you know, this um, kind of very high wealth, which afforded people this very strange uh, lifestyle in a lot of ways. And it actually happened. And so it's this very compelling time in our history where I think everything was on the cusp of so much change that we're never going to see that again. And it's also strange that it happened. So you can look back at pictures and think to yourself, well, okay, this is, this is our actual history. This isn't people playing dress up or 
this isn't make-believe. This is, this is fact. This is something that actually happened. And I think that that's really compelling to people because it's a way to step back in time and to step into a different life um, where things are really different, but then you can kind of see where the whisperings of our current society came from too. So I just love that era. I feel like right when you hit the, I always tell people that right from a writing perspective, I always kind of want to stick between um, from like the Gilded Age to the forties. Like that time period is really compelling to me because it's so different than our current society today. And yet it's, yet it also echoes our society today. So it's relatable, but also so different. And I just find that so interesting looking back at um, like I said, photos, uh, newspapers, the way life was, um, and just kind of seeing how that rippled to where we are today. And you you said to me before we we kicked off in earnest, you said to me that you think there's a certain power in historical fiction. Can you tell others about that? I mean, I know other people will have read the likes of Hilary Mantel, say, you know, uh, and maybe been swept up in the Tudors and that that, you know, 15th century Britain. But what what's the power to you of historical fiction? Right. Like, you know, I love nonfiction. I read it obviously all the time for research. Um, and it is so valuable and so interesting. And um, I can get swept away in that just as easily. But I think nonfiction really, and if you boil it down, it is an informative, you know, it, it's meant to inform. It's meant to tell you something you didn't know before and um, inform you in that way. It's kind of, a, it's very, it's fact-based. Obviously it has to be. Historical fiction also is fact-based. It's um, all the all my contemporaries that I know spend years and years researching. Um, but it also the point of historical fiction to me is that when you start reading a historical fiction work, you're reading to feel the way they felt back then. You're able to then step into somebody's shoes who lived hundreds of years before you and feel how that must have felt to, for instance. Um, be a, a farmer in North Carolina embarking on, you know, World War II, how that must have felt. Um, things like that, that we never get to experience in real life. And that when you read a newspaper article or an archive from that time, you can kind of see the fact of what was going on, but you don't necessarily feel that emotion. And um, I think it's really important to associate, you know, our current life with the life lives of our of the people that came before us, because how else are we going to then associate with how they were and how they came with these, to these decisions that now impact us today? Um, so I think it's just a, it's a way to understand and to kind of gain some understanding with, uh, with historical figures and, and characters. I guess in a lot of ways, it wouldn't be too dissimilar from the television show, The Gilded Age, or other sort of media productions that have the same sort of effect. They, they, they pull on a theme and they, they, pulling our heartstrings and our emotions as well. I mean, your your story here uh, connects your ancestors with, well, your fictional storytelling. Tell us about how you found this story. So two of my books now, I told my grandma this yesterday, we were talking, she's um, 91, and we were talking about how without her, I probably, I don't even know if I would have written, um, started writing, uh, being becoming an author, because she was, is this, kind of keeper of family stories. And from the time I was a little kid, she always told us these stories about our ancestors. And it was just very, very compelling and very vivid. And it was as if they were sitting near us and that she was just kind of, she kind of brought them into our lives. Um, so these stories 
this one and my first, my debut novel was also based on uh, one side of her family too. But um, they, they seem like just an extension of who I am. And so I really wanted to honor them um, because I have felt like they've always been a part of my life. And so I wanted to, to bring them into uh, kind of the main stage and tell their story because so often people say, or I'll talk to groups and they'll say, you know, you have such interesting family history. And I, you know, I don't know that anything really interesting happened in my family. And I say, no, something definitely interesting happened in your family. Something interesting happened in everyone's family. And the really great part about, um, and the gift for me about writing these kind of books is that I get to spend time. Um, I get to blow up basically someone's ordinary quote unquote ordinary life and make it the main stage because I don't think there's anything. I really don't think there's such a thing as an ordinary life. I think everyone's lives are really remar remarkable. And then domino into contemporary, you know, these are lives today. And so um, it's just a gift. So my grandmother really was the catalyst that made me want to write um, this kind of fiction and got me interested in it. Um, her parents passed really young. She was um, in the forties and they both were ill and, and died pretty young. And so this is her way of sort of telling those stories was her way of keeping them alive. And then, so I feel like a, a great um, responsibility, but also a great joy that I get to kind of continue that with my books. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I, I'm completely drawn to that and, and can relate to it as well. Incidentally, my grandfather uh, was an immigrant, uh, as were all my grandparents actually, but he, he worked in nurseries before joining the civilian. Oh, civilian no way. Corps. Yeah. And of course, this story is about nurseries. I know we haven't told yeah. everyone what the story is about yet, but it's about a nursery. So this connection to your family, it really struck a chord with me as I was reading it. But I don't want to dwell on my family. Uh, I want to dwell. I want to really get into the first chapter because it, it does a lot of heavy lifting, your, your, your first chapter uh, and scene setting. It starts in Rye, New York, northern uh, the northern part of, I guess, it's Westchester County. It is, uh -huh. yes, right outside the city. Right. And uh, it starts with Sadie uh, Fremd, a flower uh, and a flower nursery amidst the panic of 1893, which I know listeners will, you know, will know about that year and the Depression. It's a woman in business confronting a suitor, an old flame, a suitor and an old flame, I should say. I mean, there's everything in that first chapter. There's gender dynamics, there's economics, there's social norms and even politics in terms of the town's mayor. How important is it to you to fit as much as you can in that first chapter of background and scene setting? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, the goal is to drop somebody right into the scene to say almost like, hey, hey you know, well, for those Outlander fans out there, um, when, you know, Claire touches that stone and she's back in time. I mean, that's what we're all kind of doing in historical fiction. We want you to... Um, turn that, like read that first page and immediately be struck um, and immersed in whatever world we're setting for you. So it's very, very important. Honestly, if you don't, if you don't grab the reader from the first page then, or the first chapter, then you've kind of lost them already, you know? And so it's my goal to kind of give you that immersive experience where the environment, you feel it, you feel the environment, you feel the situation that the character's in and that makes you care. So that's, that's definitely the goal. It's very important for me to set that up. So then tell us about Sadie Friend, the main character. Well, in real life, um, I mean, and, and this is my books are what I do with my books, um, just as an aside, is I take everything I know about the real life character, everything possible. I do a lot of research for a long time and get try to get as much as I can on the page about everything I know. And of course, with historical record, there's always these gaps, right? These whys or these blank spaces. And I fill those in with fiction. And so there's a lot of Sadie. My great-great-grandmother is Sadie Friend, my real-life great-great-grandmother in this book, because it is all I know about her. And then just stuff added to it. So um, she is, she's always wanted to take over her dad's nursery business. Her dad is an immigrant from Stuttgart, Germany, who um, was a horticulturist, came over, ended up working in the New York slums, for some years. He didn't speak English. He spoke three different languages, but unfortunately, none of them were English. So when he came over here, he was working in the factories in the Lower East Side of New York. And he met um, my great, great, great grandmother, who was an English woman from the Isle of Man. And she taught him English. And it became pretty obvious as they were working that, you know, his real gift was horticulture. And he started, he got on as a planter with somebody. We don't know who, whether that was Vox or Olmsted, we're not sure. Um, we think it was one of them because of the way of the different gardens he was working on. But anyways, he, they found a need eventually for someone told him, oh, there's a need for a nursery up this way. And so he ended up buying some 40 acres in rye and starting that nursery in 1840. And, um, he ended up ultimately buying, I think it was 125 acres when it was, you know, finally completed the nursery was. So they had three children. Um, they had Charles, Fred and Sadie. And uh, of course, Sadie's the only girl, but she was the one who was the most ardently interested in horticulture. And of course, she's a woman in the Gilded Age. So they didn't really see her dad didn't really see her as a good prospect for, you know, taking over the nursery. So she at the as the, when the book begins, 
she's really excited because her brother, Charles, is going to work for Henry Flagler at his hotels in Florida to be their, his chief horticulturist, which he actually did until really for most of his life, that's what he did. Um, so she's excited that he's leaving and her other brother has already entered into politics. So finally, she's thinking this is going to be the time when dad's going to finally see that I'm the, the right successor for this, for his you know company. Uh, of course, that doesn't go as planned. So that's where we, we find Sadie when the, when it starts. Um, she also is has found out that a man that she had a relationship with um, that worked at the nurseries is now returned, and she doesn't really know why. And then, of course, there's the Panic of 1893, and the town is really suffering. So that all that dynamic comes in, and that's where we find her when when the book begins. She's very interesting. I mean, the context as well is is very interesting. There's a tinge of a uh sort of upstairs, downstairs, or Downton Abbey about, about all of it, although there's a, a great deal of class fluidity in the story as well. Sadie's family is self-made. She has friend, friends among the upper crust, and she is quite you know, respectful of the, the, the house staff. Uh, tell us about the role that class plays in your book. It's very interesting. So this happened, um, the more I study it um, within my own family, the more interested I am. So um, you know, in this particular family in the Frems, they were really poor when they came to America. They were poor immigrants. And, um, you know, my great, great, great grandfather just happened to be at the right place. I feel like at the right time and have the right set of skills. So when he opened his nurseries, he was really adamant about employing other immigrants. Um, he ended up creating a whole village of mostly Italian immigrants, um, because at that point in time, of course, um, Italians were being, you know, they were passed over for all kinds of jobs back then. That was not, they were not necessarily in demand and he didn't like that. So, um, he hired a lot of Italian immigrants, a lot of Irish immigrants at that point, um, and was very passionate about that. And, um, you know, with, with, and of course they had a lot of success too. So then with success comes money, comes access into these, you know, higher, the upper echelons of society. Um, and so they became friends with a lot of their clients, which are a lot of Gilded Age industrialists, which then put them kind of in this upper crust category, um, which makes it really, really tricky because I, I like to play with that dynamic. You know, you're you come from working class, you come from poverty, and then you're now thrust into this kind of wealth and the expectation there. And so I did play a lot with that in the book about where these people really belong because you're, they're not the Vanderbilts. I mean, the Vanderbilts were, you know, obviously self-made at one point too, but as during the Gilded Age, they were um, generally generationally in a little bit. Um, but with this family, this is kind of first generation wealth. So playing with what that means um, and then the dynamics of respect and how, you know, Sadie's dad is looking at his employees. He looks at them as as people, but then he also, and you know, people that are valuable, but then he wants Sadie to marry this, to enter into the upper, upper society for his own reasons, for her own security. And so it's a, just a weird, I think the Gilded Age is a great time to play with those dynamics because it was so obviously different. You know, you had the, the slums and then you had the big castles of Fifth Avenue. And so it was this huge visible disparity. And I think that's, we still have that today but it's just not quite as visible, I feel like, as it, it once was. No, Mark, Mark Zuckerberg is, is hidden behind another row of houses, you know? So like, yeah. <laughs> it's almost like the security is, instead of showing off your, your wealth, which I think is interesting because I think you've said, you know, 
you're, you're toying around with what it means. Well, what does it mean? If literature is supposed to get us closer to the human condition, does, do we, we, do we court wealth or do we deplore it? I mean, and how do we grapple with that? I, I think both. That's the hard part. I think as humans, like you look at history and one of the things I don't know about you, Mike, but one of the things that really kind of bothers me about historical study is that a lot of people paint people either good or bad mm. or black and white. And there of course are some figures that in history that are obviously bad or obviously good, but then there's people in the middle and there's people that, you know, you study their situations and you think, well, you know, I hope I would have reacted a certain way in this situation, but looking at wealth, you know, I think with the friend family and how they treated people and how they saw people, um, I don't think anyone's a perfect, they, no one is going to have a, a perfect historical record or a perfect life where they, where they did all the right things. But I do think that what they did right was that they never really truly forgot where they came from. They never, you know, heard Sadie's dad and Sadie, they never, they never forgot that they came from, they were immigrants that they came and how hard that was to overcome what came with that, which was digging your way out of poverty. Um, and I think that Sadie's dad always knew he was in the right place at the right time. He always knew that he was fortunate to have gone to university and had, had a horticulture degree. He knew that that was, those were things and he wanted to build up those people. But at the same time, I think he also understood that being impoverished for his daughter was not something he wanted her to enter into. And he understood the hardships there. So when he's looking at dynamics for her and saying, and kind of pushing her to make a match, a more suitable match with you know, the upper crust, he's doing that in some ways. We look at that and we think, well, that's not really great. You know, he's, he's dissuading her from going after her heart. At the same time, he knows poverty. She doesn't. She grew up without knowing it. She grew up in a comfortable life. And he, he tells her multiple times in the book, you don't understand. This is not something you play with. This is horrible. And so she kind of encounters it over time and starts to understand that really, you know, that, that plants, that natural beauty is so restricted actually to the, the impoverished that it's something that everyone needs and it's a, it's a human right. And so in the book, she starts to kind of evolve too. And that sense of how she sees others um, and how she really associates because she doesn't really she there's no way for her to really step into someone's shoes that for instance are working in the shirtwaist factory and lower on the lower east side there's no way for her to do that um, because that's never been her experience but then she starts to at least see it and she puts herself out there to being vulnerable and to try to understand others in a way that she's never done before and in that way she starts to see her motivation to take over the nurseries, not as just a selfish motivation, but maybe as something that also is, could be for the greater good of others, that um, people need hope and that plants, plants and flowers are a way to do that. So I think that like the, the message of the story really ties into us as people and, and like, and how we as a human race really are so attuned to we, we, we deserve certain basic rights. And one of those is to see nature and to be exposed to that and not to just be consumed by like the filth, which is what was happening in the in lower East Manhattan during that time. Well, for so many reasons, I want to, I want to dive deeper into that. So there's um, first of all, your sort of your take on the people of the time, which is that they are multifaceted. 
and that you can make a range of judgments about them from good to bad and everything in between, right? And and that actually the the cities, as you you say, or you know, nature and and versus the cities, that there's a range there as well between the the sort of the lushness of the outdoors, or the the, the obviously the, the the theme of flowers and gardening, to the sort of uh, grimy, you know, Gotham like you know New York. Um, that's a question that we've discussed a lot on the show. Actually, we, for example, we call it the Gilded Age, but historians disagree about what that means. I said recently in a talk that um, gilding was designed to cover up something less appealing underneath, you know, to cover up the substance with gold. But recently it's come to my attention through the podcast, in fact, that maybe the Gilded Age is more like gilding the lily, a Shakespearean term for putting gold on top of gold, you know, opulence and decadence unlike any other. So, I mean, do you have any views on this? Is the era itself covering up something or is it doubly valuable? I think you have to look at it both ways, which is not really a great answer, I'm sure for you, but I think that, you know, you, you can't look at the Gilded Age, and I think New York is such a, a great example of um, just how the, how the world was at that point anyway, because it's, it's all crammed in there, and everyone's living together, and you see the disparity between it, you know, and you can't look at, when I was doing research for this, you would see, like, I was doing a lot of research on Central Park, and um, on, you know, Vox, and Olmsted, and kind of the development there, I was thinking, you know, and then on they would talk about that and kind of the happenings of all these people and the the Vanderbilts and the Astors and whatever else was happening with the 400. And then next to it, it's like tragedies. Like you got like this burning at this shirtwaist factory or you've got like dysentery that's, you know, like sweeping the sweeping through these tenement homes and they're on the same page. And you're like, this is nuts. You know, newspapers at the time were like journals. I mean, and diaries, everything that ever happened in, in the day was printed. And it's just crazy to me to see that. And to see that on the page was just really eye-opening. So I would say that you, yes, it's it's gilding over, it is gilding over horrible things because you had on one side of New York, these people who are just like, da, 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 you know, let's go for a drive in my gilded carriage and and let's release a bunch of hummingbirds. Um, for my party and bring in exotic animals. Let's just live it up. And then on the other side, you've got people that are, you know, living in piano boxes on the side of the road and living in sewage. And it's, it's as if they didn't see that or they just didn't want to. And I think that's still happening, obviously. Um, but yeah, I think it was, it's definitely gilded because these people were gilding over, you know, over the real world. Um, and they were living a, a different world. But I also think when you do look at structurally, if you look at places like the Breakers and the Biltmore Estate and, you know, all, new, all the Newport mansions, let's just say that, um, you obviously see that it is opulence like no other as well. Well, let me ask a question about, this is a tough question, I think, uh, for me and for me and for you, because... Um, I want to know how you can tell us more about Sadie's story without giving the plot and the ending away. And I've been thinking about this and I've actually decided not to ask a lot of questions about the book because the more I ask about it, it's like, you know, the succession is on at the moment and episode three, if I say what happens in episode three, <laughs> I'm going to get hate, hate letters. Right. So yeah. I've read it and I don't want to spoil the end for anyone, but what do you want to say about the story that gets across the plot a little bit further than we've done already? 
Right. Just that. So, you know, when you start everyone, as they're growing up, I feel like you, you know, you're trying to figure out your place in the world. So, you know, looking at that. And when you look at Sadie's trajectory, she's just, she looks at her friends who are in these horrible, like just boring marriages. And she's thinking to herself, well, I don't want that. I know I want, I want to be around plants. This is what I want to do. And um, she is just enthralled by that. And so I think that the thing is, is that when she, and so that's her main goal at first is just to take over the nursery business. And then when she becomes more involved in the nursery business inadvertently, her dad is not thrilled by this, but he's kind of in, he has his back against the wall. His two sons are gone. And so temporarily she's allowed to kind of help out when she's, when she becomes more involved, she starts to see people lingering outside of the gates of these industrialist mansions. And she starts to see and have conversations with them and understands the need for natural beauty. Well, I don't think you've given anything away there. I think every, everyone <laughs> who, w- who wants to pick up the book now can, you know, can read it with confidence that they they don't know the ending. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about your writing, uh, your approach to writing. Um, I mean, how, how do you approach storytelling? I mean, obviously, we know that there's the historical fiction and you're drawing on some family stories here and you've done your research, the newspapers. But I, I suppose the question I really have is not about your, your methodologies, more about do you have this all planned out before you, you write the text? You know, do you know the ending? Where do you start if you do or don't know the ending? You know, what's the process? So I always laugh at this because it was like the most unromantic thing. You know, people think about novelists and they think about Hemingway or something with their nice glass of scotch and they're in a darkened room and they're like, you know, what am I going to write today? And, you know, this whole romanticized notion of just putting the pen to paper and seeing where the muse takes you. Well, that's not me at all. Um, I end up just getting a legal pad at some point. And, you know, I, I, the research really does inform so much of my story. So I research first, I research a great deal first. And then, but you know, one of the things I learned is that you can't pour everything you researched into your books because that's really boring for an, uh, for a novel. And so it's taking that and kind of whittling it down to not whittling the research down, but whittling the story down to what you want to tell and articulate to the reader. And really, it comes down to character. Um, what's the character's journey about? And so once I had that in my head, I kind of just write chapter by chapter. Okay. What happens first? What happens second? What happens third? And I try to make it as hard as I can for the characters. (laughs) I mean, that's what makes it interesting to the reader. You want it to be as difficult as possible, their journey. And yes, I ultimately know what their goals are. So, you know, it's about whether or not those goals change or, you know, those motivations change, whether or not the ending is giving them what they wanted at first or whether the ending is giving them something that they realize later. Um, and so it's, it's, I do know the ending before I start writing. And I always had just this, this really skeletal outline, but it, it helped me. I just started doing that from the time, I guess I started writing because I had really little kids. I had a seven month old when I first started, when I got my first book deal. So I had to figure out how to, how to write books, um, in a way that was productive. And so during nap time, I remember I would just run down the stairs, grab my notebook and, at least I'd have an idea about what was going to be going on the page that day. Um, and so that's what I do. And it's, it's, I always get surprised. There's always some part in the narrative where my brain's like, okay, well, this is going to change. We're changing this up. Let's make this a little bit more interesting or whatever. But generally speaking, I know where it's going and I pretty much always know the ending. 
Interesting. I mean, I hope there's scotch at the end when you think. <laughs> I know there should be. Actually, I was talking to my husband about that. I was like, we need to celebrate more. It's so easy. I don't know if you're the same, but it's so easy to say, okay, on to the, you know, this project's finished. Now the next one. And so it's uh it's hard to, I need to get in the habit of more often cracking open those bottles. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'm wondering too if maybe you can give, I mean, this is the third, am I right saying the third book that you published? It's my fourth. Fourth. Okay. Sorry. Um, what advice would you give to historians or writers that are interested in historical fiction? Cause I don't, I imagine it's a bit like writing a history book in the sense that it's very isolating. I mean, I'm saying my own experience here, but I, I've heard this from my colleagues and friends as well, that it's very isolating. And I think writing itself is a very individualistic pursuit. Only you get it the way you intended it to be, right? So I'm wondering if you feel the same way and what advice you can give to, to others. Of course. Yeah, I do. I do feel like it is very isolating. I will say though, what's really important is to cultivate a group of friends that are in your position, other writers. You know, when I was first starting out, I was, I got a group of friends who are all aspiring writers and now we all are published, which is really fun and in different genres, which is really cool too. Um, but having people that understand the industry, because much like a lot of other entertainment industries, it's weird. It's a very strange industry. Um, it doesn't operate like, you know, your typical job. And so it's great to have people who understand you and understand the process because nowadays too, it used to be, I think back, you know, during the Gilded Age, for instance, when Edith Wharton was writing, um, you were, you wrote the book and it came out and you weren't, you weren't going on these book tours. You weren't supposed to go on the internet and, <laughs> and you know, build a, an audience. It was about the work, right? It just came out and, and it was reviewed probably and, um, and publicized that way. But I think nowadays it is so interesting because an author's job is twofold. It is to write the best book you can write. And then it is to uh, be accessible and be someone who's willing to get out and talk about it. And someone who is up for, you know, you have two hats you wear. One is very isolating and individualistic. And the other one is like co the complete opposite. You're around, you know, hundreds of people. And, you know, I know you said you were just at the breakers doing a talk too. So you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like this, you're in your office and then suddenly you're, you're talking to hundreds of people and it's a fun thing to do, but you definitely put on different hats. It's kind of jarring at first when you're like going from one to the other, you got to put on, you know, I actually have to wear normal clothes instead of workout clothes <laughs> um, for some, but you know, that's one thing is to just realize that, you know, authors these days are generally more social than people think, think they are. Um, they want to talk to people. They enjoy talking about their process and their work. And they also are really accessible. I remember, I remember talking to some published authors when I was first starting out, just getting some advice on, on, you know, sending query letters to agents or, you know, um, getting some, someone to look at my book to see if it was any good. And they were really accessible and really helpful. And I think the thing is, I always try to talk people into becoming a novelist or a, a writer. I always think, think it's so much fun. So I was, I always want the more the merrier. So come join me. But I think the biggest thing really for anyone who thinks they have a book in them is just to open that, to start doing it, to start writing, because that's the hardest thing. I have a lot of people who say, well, I don't have a lot of time to write. I have this book I want to write, but I don't have the time to do it. And I always say, you know, 
this sounds like a lot, but even if you did a thousand words a day, which is about, you know, like three or four pages that adds up over time, you can have a book, you know, done or like a, a book amount of words finished in, you know, six months or something like that. I mean, it's, it's really wild how once you have that story and that story starts coming out, it ends up kind of being an exercise. And so I would just encourage anyone who has a story or thinks they do, um, or a, a motivation to write any sort of book to just start putting the, the pen to paper, whether, and I say that, obviously I'm talking about typing for me, but just get, get in there and, and carve out the time, whether that's, you know, 30 minutes a day, or whether that's two hours a day, whatever that looks like for you. But I do think we all have stories to tell. And that's kind of how we as, as um, a community, as the world get to know each other better is by listening to each other's stories and what's important to each other. So I always think that people, that people that are writing stories are doing it for a reason. We're doing it because um, we have a point of view to offer or we have some information to offer that somebody cares about in the world. Yeah, great advice. I mean, writers write. That's what they do. So if you want to be a writer, that's all you have to do in 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 a sense, right? But uh, I, I take the point that we also wear a lot of hats nowadays, and that's that's probably a change as well. Joy, what's your next project? Are you sticking with the Gilded Age, or are you moving on to? You mentioned the 1940s earlier. I'm wondering is are you you do, do uh, historians do that? You know, they move they they move from one period. They usually go forward, not backwards. But yeah. I wonder what you're up to next. <laughs> Well, you know, so my, I mentioned the forties because my last book that came out last year called the grand design, it was about Dorothy Draper and the, the Greenbrier resort. Um, it was set in 1908 and 1946. And it was about her life, um, going from, she was a, a iron and shipping heiress, um, that lived in tuxedo park, New York. And they were of the set, you know, that were, don't talk about my wealth. You know, this is prior to, this is the more Dutch settler type of situation where they didn't want to talk about their wealth. Um, she grew up in that kind of atmosphere. And then she went from that to CEO of the first American interior design firm, which was crazy. You know, a lot of people now are like, oh, well, Paris Hilton has her own lines and all this, but it'd be like, you know, a princess going from like suddenly deciding, well, I'm going to open up my own company that wouldn't have been done back then. And so I was always fascinated by that. So that's why I mentioned the forties because I spent a lot of time there um, researching before, but my next project is actually set in Asheville, North Carolina. And it is about the building of the Grove Park Inn, which is a great historic resort in Asheville. It was, it's built almost entirely of stone from the mountain. It, it looks, have you ever, have you ever seen it, Mike? Never been there. No. It's amazing. It looks like, it really looks like a wonder of the world because it's just stones stacked on top of each other. Um, it's magnificent. And so it's about the building there, but more than that, it's about the people who built the hotel and kind of about legacy and what that means as far as, you know, you had these people and it would, they would say, Oh, well, like for instance, with Biltmore, well, George Vanderbilt built Biltmore. Well, he did. I mean, he, he had the idea for it. He had gave the money for it, but who actually was building it. And so so often those names are forgotten and, and just left to, to like just wither in history. And so I, I didn't like that. I wanted to kind of bring light to that fact. So um, the story is about this girl who comes from a mining background in West Virginia and her stepdad is a gas baron um, in Indiana. And she finds herself 
camping with the vagabonds. So Henry Ford, Harry Firestone, and they used to bring their families on this, these camping trips. And one of them, one of the camping trips took them to Asheville. And um, while they're there, they're seeing their friend's new hotel. And she starts to see how remarkable it is and wants to really bring light to the, the making sure that those workers are remembered in history. So it's, it's called, we just settled on a title. It's called What the Mountains Remember. And it's, so it's 1913 set. So, um, you know, right there in the, in the sweet spot where I love to kind of settle. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, that's going to be really exciting. I'll, I'll keep my eyes peeled for that. Um, you're incredibly productive, Joy. It's, uh, it, it's amazing. You do write. You're a writer and you do write. So that's obviously, you know, that's get, get the words on the page. But you're certainly doing that in abundance. And it's been a pleasure having you on the show. The book is called Thank All you. the Pretty Face. Uh, sorry, all the the book is called All the Pretty Places, and uh, it's it's out now. So uh, pick up a copy. Thanks so much. I had such a great time talking to you. I appreciate it. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.